Hello, my name's Bram E. Gieben, and you're listening to Strange Exiles, a new podcast about ideas, ideology, and identity. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Peter Sass, a Dutch philosopher and writer and musician, um, who runs a blog called The Critique of Pure Interest. I had a fascinating chat with Peter. Um, He was able to unpack a lot of um, uh, concepts from philosophy and spirituality for me. Uh, He really doesn't see a boundary between those two things. So he's a philosopher influenced by people like Hegel and Nietzsche, uh, but also equally influenced by Eastern spiritual uh, ideas, especially non-dualism. So we're going to find out today exactly what non-dualism is and how Eastern modes of thought and belief have influenced uh, Western philosophers and about how Peter Sass is taking those ideas and progressing them on to come up with new formulations and new theories. It was really fascinating to chat to Peter just about the life of a philosopher as well. Today we're going to talk about a couple of his uh, interesting theories. One is um, a theory that he came up with a few years ago, but has since um, slightly progressed beyond or uh, moved away from, which he called dialectical nihilism. Uh, I've always been fascinated by uh, kind of nihilist philosophy, so this was my entry point to his blog. And um, we, we started off by talking a little bit about his, uh, his definition of dialectical nihilism. Towards the end of our talk, uh, we got into his new theory, which he is calling Buddhist Marxism. Absolutely fascinating approach to both uh, Buddhism as a, as a set of ideas, as a religion, and of course to, to the ideas in Marx. So without any further ado, let's get into this chat with Peter Sass from the Critique of Pure Interest blog. Do you want to tell us, first of all, uh, a little bit about your background? Um, So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is uh, Peter Sass. I'm Dutch and um, I'm 49 years old. I'm I'm, uh, turning uh, 50 in December, so I'm uh, getting old, hopefully very old. And I studied philosophy. I started my education uh, in 1990, so that's a while ago, and uh, that's when I started my uh, I started doing philosophy at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, and I got my PhD in philosophy in uh, 2001, and I always intended to be like an academic uh, philosopher. But things didn't work out that way, you know. It's it's funny how it goes with the uh, uh, with the plans you make. So my line of work is in an entirely different direction. But I always uh, kept my uh, interest in philosophy. Um, nowadays, a bit less, uh, as I'm more into making music nowadays. But in the past, I was a very I was very passionately engaged with uh, with uh, philosophy. Um, looking at the evolution of ideas that you're discussing on your blog, the critique of pure interest, it seems like um, over the last few years, it's kind of your ideas have led you down a, a path that's more influenced by spiritual ideas and um, you know the the ideas of non-dualism. Uh, would it would it be fair to say that that's kind of that's kind of where you've led, kind of the path you've gone down recently? Yeah. Well, you know. Not surprisingly, my, 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 my ideas have always kept evolving. Uh, I think that's it's true for most philosophers, that uh, you start out thinking a certain way and then over the years um, you see your own ideas evolving. And um, for me, when I was uh, a student in philosophy, I was at first very much I was a, a scientific uh, materialist, and ultimately, I was also very interested in postmodernism. So, my 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 perspectives and ideas ideas have always shifted very much. But in the years, there was some kind of stabilization, and I I came upon non-duality and non-dualism, and that's like it feels like a final, you know, like a final vision for me. That's that's what I feel most at home and um, what I think is ultimately true. So mm. 
I believe that you you became interested in my my blog through a paper called Dialectical Nihilism. Yes. And um, uh, at that time, I was very much interested in uh, this famous question by Leibniz: uh, Why is there something rather than nothing? Mm. And that that's a, a crucial that has been a crucial question for me, thinking about that. And at first, it took me to uh, to the ideas of dialectical nihilism. And then over the years, it kind of evolved into a more spiritual perspective. So I found uh, something really fascinating in the dialectical nihilism essay, which was that you were kind of using nihilism as a, as a, as a almost like a positive approach to looking at existence. So rather than uh, the void being horror, it was that the void was what cancelled out the possibility of the infinite and kept them in balance. So I, I think that that... That was maybe for me the most fascinating thing was that nihilism's often kind of used as as a negative or an opposite of whatever is being debated, whether that's an ideology or a spiritual belief. But you seem to be approaching it as kind of a useful part of the toolkit for defining what existence is, what consciousness is. Yeah. Well, I must say that you know I I no longer stand behind that that position. Uh, it has kind of evolved uh, into something else. But, you know, you're right. At the time when I, when I was into this dialectical nihilism uh, idea, I saw it as a very positive thing. You know, it's like uh, life is in, in a way meaningless. It is all nothing, uh, ultimately. Um, but that gives you the freedom to do what you like. It's a very, very, very liberating idea that that life is meaningless you know because it gives you the freedom to pursue pursue your own interest to do what you want and uh, I think that's an idea that that, that comes from from uh, Martin Heidecker who said that you know the fact that we are going to die that death is the ultimate the ultimate future for us makes all our plans meaningless. And it drops life of its meaning because in the end you will die. So, so you know, who gives a, a, a fuck? Am I am I allowed to say fuck? <laughs> please, please say fuck as many times as you wish. <laughs> so, uh, suppose that life had a meaning. You know, that would be a very, um, very scary thought because then, 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 then that meaning would almost become a prison. You know, you would have to live according to that meaning. So that's a very, very coercive thing. But the realization that life is meaningless, uh, it sounds negative, but it, it, it opens up an entire range of possibilities of what you can do, what you're allowed to do. Eh? You can follow your heart in a way. So that's the posit- that's one of the positive aspects of it. Yeah, that very much chimed with some thinking I've been doing, you know, about the ideological uh, side of, of, of how, you know, nihilism could be used as an approach to ideology. Um, and we won't dive into that too much. Um, I, I, I find what's really interesting about ideas in that kind of existentialist or nihilist space in philosophy is, is I guess, the oxymorons at the heart of them. I, I think, you know, that, that, that concept that you've been talking about in terms of meaninglessness lets you do anything. I, I like to express that in terms of nothing is true, everything is permitted, which was um, a, a phrase that Crowley, Alistair Crowley, really liked, attributed to Hassan Sabah. But then you've also got uh, Dostoevsky, who said, um, you know, if God is dead, nothing is permitted. And I think that both both of those kind of occupy a similar space in philosophy, but there are they're in contrast so i liked how your theory um of dialectical nihilism kind of kept those things in tension uh but i wonder if in ter- if that has evolved as a, p- a position um let's talk a little bit about dualism versus non-dualism uh can we unpack that a little bit yeah sure um so um, i think how it's understood in in, uh, in spiritual context uh, dualism is the idea that you are separate from the world around you. You know, there is the individual, there's the subject, and he stands over against the world or the object. And I think that it's very close to what is known in philosophy as like mind-body dualism, Mm. which which came from Descartes. Um, On one hand, you have the mind, 
and um, which is immaterial. Uh, and on the other hand, you have the material world. And that's a very related idea to uh, uh, dualism in the spiritual context. You can also say, uh, you can also call it like the idea of separation, of separateness, that all things exist separately. In the modern worldview, of course, this is very, um, uh, very well known idea, but it's known as like atomism. When the modern worldview uh, came about in the 16th and 17th century, uh, atomism was the, the leading idea. And in the first place, of course, you have like atomism in a materialist context, the idea that everything is made from these material atoms, which exist separately from each other. But you can also carry that over to a social uh, context where you have social at atomism, where you see uh, society as made up of uh, separate individuals, like individual atoms. Each person is a, like a spiritual atom separated from others. That's also an idea that is very ideologi ideologically um, uh, laden. Is that the correct term? Yeah. But of course, that's the, 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 the dominant way that, that uh, capitalism looks at the world as made up of competing individuals, individuals that compete with each other. And um, so there you see how, how um, like a, a political, economical system like, like capitalism is involved with uh, ideas about how the world works. Non-dualism, on the other hand, rejects all that. It says that all is basically one. There are no atoms. There are no se separated individuals. There's just one whole, one whole of being. And that somehow takes the form of what appear to be separate individuals. But in fact, they are, they are all manifestations or expressions, if you like, of the same thing. And of course, it's not really a thing. And here we touch again on this dialectical nihilism idea. Uh, the ultimate reality is not a thing. It's closer to a no-thing, you know, uh, more like a nothing, a no-thing, um, a void. Mm. And um, the dominant way in, in non-dual spirituality is to, to look upon this, this one thing that is the ultimate reality as consciousness or awareness. There's one single consciousness and it manifests in different ways, as different individuals, as different kind of beings, as the universe ultimately. You know, you could say that the universe is the way that this single consciousness appears to itself. And uh, that's that's that at least that's how I look at non-dualism. There are of course other people who will disagree with me because it's a highly contentious uh, topic with hmm. people disagreeing with each other very much. But that's the way I, I like to look at it. Um, the universe is the way consciousness appears to itself. That's fascinating. And I, I think one of the things that really resonated for me in, in your essays about non-dualism was this idea of uh, because it's kind of almost perceivable as a field, this, uh, this non-dualistic one consciousness that that's the place where we can dissolve ego exactly and the ego is kind of like a legacy of this dualistic heritage um i mean do you think that these are ideas i think it's i think it's inarguable that these are ideas that are important right now given the state of the world do you think that they are ideas that are gaining more currency or do you think that they're ideas that are in danger of perhaps slipping out of the world i think that on the one hand more and more people are um, realizing that uh, everything is one and everything is interconnected, to put it in a more new age uh, kind of terminology. You know, physics, of course, is, is also progressing towards uh, such a view. So there's a kind of scientific uh, backing for it. You know, the, if there's one conclusion that, that modern physics has reached, it is the idea that that everything is interconnected on the physical level. Like I mentioned uh, atomism before, but that idea, that paradigm has been completely 
um, turned on its head in, in more recent uh, physics, mm. where, where the universe is rather seen as one interconnected whole. Everything is interconnected. So there's this scientific part of it, which, which, which uh, confirms this idea of, 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 you, of cosmic unity. And then, of course, we also have the climate, the, the current climate crisis, and we're beginning to realize that we are not separate from the planet. We are part of the planet. And if we are uh, slowly destroying our planet, that will affect our own lives as well. You know, we start to see that uh, when there is a heat wave in Siberia and the permafrost there is going to, um, to melt, um, then all these greenhouse gases will, uh, will get into the atmosphere and uh, you know, that will cause global uh, rising of temperature. So we're, we're getting um, our grasp of, of, of the unity of the ecosystem, which is, which is the Earth, that is becoming much clearer and clearer and clearer. And of course, because we are conf confronted with all these um, problems caused by climate change, I think this 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 consciousness of of um, of unity will become um, will become much clearer to people. Mm. And um, and of course, the world is getting more uh, interconnected. Uh, constantly, you know, through globalization, through social media and uh, the communication technologies which have emerged over the past 50 years or so, that has also re revolutionized our understanding of the world we live in. You know, it is uh, the very fact that I'm talking to you right now um, and that you will in the future um, um, uh, turn this out to the world as a podcast um that would have been unthinkable of course to uh you know people 50 years ago but uh the technology is making our world much smaller so i think yeah there are a lot of factors nowadays which contribute to this understanding of of one the oneness of existence the cosmic unity of existence on the other hand uh, the situation in our world, it's not very uh, rosy. You know, there are a lot of problems and a lot of tensions and uh, a lot of refugees, for example. And there's now a refugee crisis in um, in Greece. And uh, you see that uh, other European countries are not willing to take up these refugees. Also, the people in, in uh, where I live, you know, in, in Holland, uh, I think that most people don't want to take in more refugees. Mm. That kind of empathy, which goes with uh, this cosmic unity, that is still that is still lacking. Perhaps that will change in the future. I don't know. We just have to see how it uh, will work out. Yeah, it's almost too tempting to think of these things in a kind of Manichean struggle of good and bad as well. I think you know, uh, certainly in the in the in the writings of people like John Gray. He, he has a very materialistic kind of um, pessimistic vision of humanity in which there is, that this, this struggle between good and evil is an illusion and that history is just cycles and that things repeat and that the that human nature doesn't change. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, like the dialectical nihilism, there's, there can be some comfort in kind of addressing the void. Do you think there's some comfort in kind of letting go of finding meaning in history? Like Gray said, looking for meaning in history is like looking for patterns in clouds. Yeah, well, um, I don't know. I, I'm kind of on two legs uh, as to that question. Uh, on the one hand, I'm very much inclined to, the, to think that there's a, a process going on through human history of evolving self-consciousness. Hmm. Almost like a cosmic process, you know. Um, in my view, reality is is ultimately one consciousness, and this consciousness is the point of this consciousness is that it becomes ever more conscious of itself. You know, that is also what what enlightenment uh, is. Enlightenment, not in the modern Western sense, but in the Eastern spiritual sense. You know, at first you see yourself as just a separated individual that's the dualistic ended uh, mentality and then 
uh, when you start on the spiritual path, you gradually realize that, wait a minute, I'm not just me, I am rather, I'm the universe manifesting at me as me. So this self-consciousness that I have of myself at that moment is really the universe becoming conscious of itself through me. Mm. And it seems to be like a cosmic process, you know? So I have the idea, I have the, um, it's more like an intuition that, that the evolution of the cosmos is really an evolution of uh, ever-widening, ever-increasing self-consciousness. Mm. So maybe there is some hope for us there in the future. Uh, on the other hand, when you, when you do realize that you are just the universe manifesting as you, there's not no there's not really a point in in wanting anything else to be different you know uh, you accept the world as it is you embrace the world as it is and uh, however much it's uh, it sucks uh, sometimes um the very realization that it's an, that this is how the universe manifests itself that makes it all right in a basic sense you know even uh, even the shitty things are uh, embraced as uh, as a manifest as a manifestation of of the one or the whole, and that somehow makes it all right. If you, uh, if you understand me, absolutely. And I think you know that's maybe something that people who've been maybe raised in a very Judeo-Christian or um, you know like like a very Western thought tradition, whether that's Judeo-Christian or a polit particular political affiliation, they maybe wouldn't consider that aspect that there's um, that there's a certain pragmatism. Of in dissolving the ego, in dissolving the position of I, um, it allows you to approach life maybe with with quite a pragmatic view, where where there isn't a teleological need for things to turn out well or end happily or you know come to a revolution. That you you do in some level find this a way, way of looking at life where you can accept things as they are. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if I could ask you about absolute idealism. Um, that's that's one idea that you kind of explore in your blog. Um, what what is absolute idealism? Well, um, basically, uh, it is the idea that reality is a single consciousness. It is the idea that the absolute, which means basically the unconditioned ground of everything, the basis of reality, you could say. That that is uh, uh, consciousness or a subject, as they say in philosophy. So that's the Western idea, but it it tallies very well with Eastern spirituality, where you have very similar ideas. For example, in India, in ancient India, there suddenly emerged these ideas um, that um, the ultimate reality, which they call Brahman. Uh, is the same as the Atman, or the self, uh, or the subject, in a more Western terminology. So, um, these ideas emerged in a um, very beautiful text, which I love very much. They're called the Upanishads, and um, they were written somewhere around 600 or 700 before Christ, but they probably go back to an oral tradition of oral uh, communication of these ideas. So the, the, the basic ideas are probably a few centuries older, perhaps, you know, like 900 or 1,000 before Christ. So that's very old. That's, that's much older than, uh, than ancient Greek philosophy. So and it's very stunning to see that in the Upanishads you find the, the, this idea that Brahman is Atman, eh, or that the ultimate reality is the self, or the conscious self, and that these very same ideas re-emerged uh, at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century in, in German idealism. And there they are called absolute idealism, eh, the, uh, the idea that reality at its basis is a single consciousness or a conscious self. You know, um, everything you see or everything you you can touch or everything you hear, that's all a perception in consciousness. And we really never see anything outside of consciousness. That's a very strange uh, realization when you, when you think about it. You know, normally when you look at something, for example, you see a tree, you think, well, the tree exists separately from me. 
there's a tree and I'm here. But in reality, it is just a conscious perception. Um, take away the perceiver and the perceived object vanishes as well. So we really have no foothold outside of consciousness. Um, everything we think about, everything we feel, everything we experience, is it's all in consciousness. And normally we think that consciousness is in our heads, you know, so for each individual there is a, there is a, a single consciousness, but absolute idealism uh, looks at it in a very different way, you know, it's, it sees that there's a single consciousness, a universal consciousness, and in this universal consciousness, different things appear, like different individual beings, or trees, or stars, or planets, um, and that's all as much a Western idea as it is an Eastern idea. But the difference between the Western and the Eastern approaches is that the Western approach is very intellectual. It is aimed at understanding reality. But in the Eastern approach, um, this ab absolute idealism functions as a way to achieve like liberation or enlightenment. You have to feel it, you know, in, in, at the core of your being that you are this you are at the bottom, you did this all-encompassing consciousness, and that frees you from the troubles of the finite ego. I, I guess for me, um, you know, r reading about these ideas was very abstract in the, it, initially when I encountered them. Uh, and then through through my own kind of, you know, life journey, um, I, I learned transcendental meditation. I think for a while I was meditating the wrong way, by which I mean um, I, was, I was using it to escape my troubles. I wanted like a respite, 20 minutes of my day that was respite from reality. Um, and it wasn't until I, re I kind of made the connection that in actual fact what I was teaching my brain to do was not escape my body but recognize that it was in my body and not be so caught up in these ideas um, and you know rising anxieties and ideas in my brain um, so the idea of Maya uh, became really fascinating to me and, and, and I, I think you know that's something that you're expressing there this idea of um, a larger reality but what I was surprised to find was that it was physical embodiment in the self that made me feel connected to the world and reality and nature and other people rather than abstract thought and you know escaping the physical into another realm i feel, I feel like that's maybe quite a a common a, like epiphany that people have when they're exploring more eastern modes of thought or more non-dualistic modes of thought well for me um what was a very important experience was that um uh i was at the beach and um, I was thinking and reading about these these topics, and of course the beach it was beautiful weather and the beach is a perfect place for relaxing and uh, so I was very relaxed and uh, in the right kind of mood I guess, and I saw all these kids playing on the beach and I saw all these people lying in the sun and swimming and having fun, and there then the, the, suddenly was this this realization that the universe itself was playing there with itself in the form of these children 
or the universe itself was enjoying the, um, the warmth of the sun and uh, the refreshing quality of the, of the, of the seawater, you know what I mean? And um, at that moment, um, all these abstract ideas, which I had previously, they, they became like um, a way of experiencing, a way of being in the world. And from that day onwards, it, it has never left me. Um, sometimes this feeling of, of cosmic interconnection is more in the background. You know? Sometimes it's more in the, in the foreground, but it's, uh, it's always there. And, um, and it's a very physical thing, yes. Um, I think that, that that's the point, of course, of meditation and of doing yoga and, and uh, things like that. It is to prepare your body to become very tranquil and uh, transparent almost so that it can, that this kind of consciousness can, can arise. I guess that's how dualism makes sense to me as like the normative mode of approaching things and thinking about things is that it's this division between self and other and it's the division between the self and the physical world you inhabit. So people almost think of themselves as like the protagonist in a video game, the world as this constantly generating environment that to their perception exists while they travel through it. From the game's perspective, it's created as they travel through it. And and two, um, two people who think of themselves as this kind of protagonist, um, Daniel Dennett calls it the benign user illusion that we imagine as controlling, you know, sitting behind our eyes, directing our thoughts. But, it, it, you know, it strikes me that if you're thinking of yourself as the protagonist with all of these complex motives and justifications and maybe self-deceptions, you, you are also seeing the rest of the world as almost like non-player characters in a video game you you only apprehend them through their actions you don't apprehend them through necessarily seeing yourself in them uh, do, do you think do you think that's at the heart of a kind of maybe the solipsism of capitalism is is this self other kind of split that people have yeah i think so um when you think of yourself as, as fundamentally separated from from others. And then, of course, a thing like compassion, for example, becomes very difficult. And it gives the idea that your consciousness is locked up in your own body. On the non-dual uh, non perspective, of course, you realize that that's a totally wrong way of looking at things, that uh, consciousness is not is not located in your brain. You know, maybe this is a nice point to discuss, uh, which, which I think is a very crucial point, um, which has emerged over the last also 50 years, I think. And that's the, the so-called heart problem of consciousness. And that really frees up our idea of consciousness. It, it, it liberates it from the, the, the chains of materialism, if you can call it that way. Uh, you know, in a materialist perspective, we think that reality is, is primarily made up of, 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 of matter, of atoms and molecules and stuff like that. And then somehow this matter becomes organized in a special way, takes the shape of a living cell, which evolves through Darwinian evolution, uh, uh, ultimately into intelligent beings like us with brains and these brains. Um, in their functioning, they somehow produce consciousness. But as philosophers, English-speaking philosophers have shown over the years, it's very difficult, or perhaps it's better to say impossible, to explain how uh, you can get consciousness from uh, a material system such as the brain. Yeah, There are some very, very strong uh, arguments or thought experiments, as they call them, which, which show that there's always an explanatory gap that remains open. You know, we can explain, for example, how the brain makes memories, or we can explain how the brain uh, governs the body, for example, that um, I have this teacup on my desk here, and we can explain that how the, the light reflects from the teacup into my eyes and it sends signals to my brain and there it activates a certain area in my brain 
which decides that I, I am thirsty. And then there goes a signal to my arm so that my arm lifts up the, the cup and I drink it. You know, neuroscience can explain all that. But the fact that all these processes are accompanied by um, a conscious experience of drinking tea, for example, that remains um, something that, that neuroscience can't even touch, touch on. You know? um, why is all this brain activity accompanied by, conscious, by consciousness, by conscious experiences? That is something totally unexplained. So when you let that sink that in, you realize that consciousness is something very, very special. It, it isn't produced by the brain. It can't be produced by the brain. So that, that gives you a totally new perspective. I think that that is also one of the things that is slowly sinking in nowadays, that consciousness is, uh, is very special and doesn't fit in the materialist's worldview. Yeah, for, for, I have a fascination with the, the, the SETI project, the search for um, extraterrestrial intelligence. And I think that this has a bearing on that too, um, in that, you know, we perceive consciousness for a very long time in a way that was about individuals. And we, we only really granted consciousness as something that we recognize to human beings. Um, but neuroscience uh, is very much, you know, developing um, an appreciation of consciousness that does take in other animals. Uh, you know, we can prove that uh, not just that, you know, certain species can use tools, but that they experience emotions and so on. Um, and I think of that in terms of the relation to SETI of being like, would we recognize a conscious creature if we if we saw it? It is our perception of the, the field of consciousness still really, really too narrow. Um, uh, you know, for, for me, the logical conclusion from accepting that perhaps consciousness pre-exists my consciousness and will continue to exist after as a, as a field that we're all in, it, it, maybe that encompasses, you know, rocks the world which i guess to, that also goes along with james lovelock's gaia theory too doesn't it yeah 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 well um um what was for me a very important realization was that um consciousness is not in my head but my head is in consciousness you know um there's this there was a famous uh, japanese uh, philosopher what's his name uh, nishida uh, and he says, uh, which I think is a very, uh, very clarifying uh, formulation, but he said, um, there's no experience because there is an individual, but there is an individual because there is experience. Perhaps we should rephrase it as, there is not consciousness because there is an individual, but there is an individual because there is consciousness. You know? You, what what we have to realize is that we experience ourselves. We only know ourselves through experience. So um, the possibility of experiencing, which is what consciousness uh, fundamentally is, that somehow precedes our individuality. So it is pre-individual, and that that makes it feel like you know you you, you used that uh, that term earlier. I think that is very uh, very good term. Um, consciousness is pre-individual because it precedes the individuals that appear in consciousness. You know, you appear to yourself, uh, and um, and but what you fundamentally are is um, you are not that which appears. No, you are that to which it appears. But uh, that to which it appears, that is not something that itself appears. You know, it's like the eye cannot see itself. So consciousness um, is like this, this giant cosmic eye, which sees everything, but which cannot itself be seen. Um, and, you know, I, I, you, you mentioned the SETI project. Uh, I have often thought about that's kind of a fantasy I have that when we finally meet aliens, I'm very much interested in their philosophy. What kind of philosophy do they uh, do they espouse? And I always uh, think that 
they're probably non-dualists. <laughs> and, they, and they probably take consciousness as the ultimate reality. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good point to bring in the Buddhist Marxism thing because it seems to me like that 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 really this is almost in political terms perhaps a perhaps an argument of radical subjectivity versus radical intersubjectivity. Um, you know, uh, insofar as the the dualistic mindset asks you to define your terms and set them out and then view reality in this kind of rigid way through those terms it attempts to establish an an objective from a subjective point of view whereas a radical intersubjectivity is kind of formless and boundless and is and is purely about looking outside oneself and then incorporating that into the wider picture of the world is is, is that kind of where the buddhist marxism ideas are starting to form like in that space uh, yeah, I think so. You know, I, I was very much interested uh, in in Eastern spirituality, of course, and in, in Buddhism. And uh, there were also these things happening in the world which I didn't agree with. You know, there's Trump in America, and uh, he's turning out to be uh, uh, more and more of a fascist. And uh, there's capitalism, uh, which is uh, slowly dis- destroying our world. So I wanted a way to combine this this kind of political uh, political activism or uh, critical attitude with uh, with a more of a spiritual outlook, and so I started to think about the um, the relationship between Buddhism and Marxism. And you know, at first you think, well, they have nothing in common, but when you think about it, there are many similarities. Many similarities. Um, for example. Both Buddhism and Marxism, they start from the idea that the way we normally look at the world and at ourselves is fundamentally wrong, you know, that we, uh, in a normal mode of being, we are uh, slaves to a kind of ignorance. Now, in Eastern spirituality or in Buddhism, it's called ignorance, and in Marxism, it's called ideology. Um, But they both point to this idea that our normal view of ourselves and the world, there's f- something fundamentally wrong with it. And they both uh, locate the, the main problem with the way we think about uh, ego, about ourselves, about individu- individuality. So it's basically the, the illusion of duality, you know, that we are separated ego, separate from the world. And uh, Buddhism wants to overcome that. Marxism as well, you know, in a sense. Um, Marxism, what Marx cared about very much was that humanity is a, is one is one whole, you know, and um, we are social beings. We are not individual beings. So we are manifestations of uh, uh, the human essence. But the human essence is something that is. Uh, is something that precedes the individual. And um, capitalism and uh, political, like, uh, uh, liberal theory of Adam Smith and stuff like that, they they see the, the individual as, an, as a social atom. Uh, but you must see the individual as an expression or a manifestation of this social essence. So there, in a way, there's a kind of holism in, in Marxism. Now, Marx even said that um, he was a naturalist, of course, in a way. So he saw that human beings are part of nature. So there is a kind of ecological consciousness in Marx too, which wasn't very much developed. No, it is something that remained implicit in his in his uh, writings, but it's there. You know, he uh, he he somewhere says that um, mankind uh, reaching self consciousness is some is more is is in reality nature becoming consciousness through itself. Uh, sorry, I'm putting that in the wrong way. Nature becomes conscious of itself through uh, man. Mm. So that, that sounds very uh, non-dualistic. So the, the point in both Buddhism and in Marxism is that we have to overcome this egocentric attitude and realize our oneness with with the world or with the cosmos or uh, whatever. So that is one similarity between Buddhism and Marxism. What is also very interesting is that in Buddhism, and especially in later Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, you have the idea of the um, interconnectedness of everything. The, uh, they call it uh, dependent co-arising. 
So nothing exists just for itself. You know, it is always a pro product of a context. You know, uh, as a human being, I, I only exist because I breathe the air or because I eat the food or because my body is adapted to uh, the atmospheric pressure on Earth. Take away all these things and I just, I vanish or I, I die. So um, phenomena or things, they always appear together in, in causal relationships. Nothing exists for itself. Now, when you look at Marx, that's exactly what he said too. Uh, human beings are what they are because they are formed in a social network. They are really like notes, you know, notes in a, in a, in a social network. Um, so that was a very strong similarity I saw between Buddhism and, and Marx, this idea of uh, the interconnectedness of everything. And, um, and of course, both systems, if I may call them systems, uh, both are aimed at liberation. Um, you know, the, the point of Buddhism is to become free from this egocentric, dualistic attitude. And the point of Marxism is to become free from what you could call possessive individualism. Um, so that there's some real um, possibility there of a, a fruitful exchange between Buddhism and Marxism. I researched this a little bit, and um, I, I believe that in, in Southeast Asia there have been some Buddhists who have developed this, um, um, you know, this dialogue with, with Marxism. Um, but, you know, the, the world nowadays is not very much receptive to, uh, to Marxism, uh, of course, because Marx has been associated with uh, Stalinist communism and stuff like that. So it has become unfashionable, which is... Uh, something that I regret very much because uh, Marx was a, a brilliant man and uh, uh, it's sad to see that uh, uh, nobody, uh, not nobody, but almost nobody understands his ideas properly because almost everybody sees him as a, a communist like Lenin or Stalin. But he, he was nothing of the sort. Yeah. I'm really fascinated to see you develop those ideas. I think that's a really kind of fertile ground, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm fascinated to see that starting to appear in your essays um, on the on the critique of pure interest blog. Um, that that's been such a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much, Peter. I wonder if just to finish off, um, we could give a kind of reading list for anybody listening. Just a few books that you would recommend, or blogs perhaps um, that you might recommend for people wanting to explore these ideas. Let me think. I would highly recommend uh, the Upanishads to uh, to people, um, but they're a little bit tough going uh, because there's a lot of mythological background in there, uh, which might seem very alien at first. So you have to struggle through that in order to get to the nuggets of, of wisdom, which are in there. But um, you will certainly be rewarded, and. Um, let me think. Well, I, there's this really nice little book which is very accessible by, uh, I believe his name is Taft. His last name is Taft. And um, it's called Non-Dualism. And it provides a very accessible introduction to um, uh, non-dual philosophy which has been developed through the ages from ancient India to Buddhism and uh, to our present time. So that's a very accessible little book. Um, nowadays, people are, as I said, um, recognizing the very special nature of consciousness and the fact that you can't understand this from a materialist perspective. And uh, one person who is very uh, knowledgeable in, um, uh, in that area, his name is Bernardo Kastrup. Uh, Kastrup, I don't know how to pronounce it. And um, he has this website, uh, Bernardo Kastrup's Metaphysical Speculations, and he, he thinks he philosophizes about consciousness uh, from a non-dual perspective. Um, the political aspect is more or less missing uh, there, 
Um, but he's a very interesting figure that I would certainly recommend people to uh, to investigate. That's fantastic. Thanks for those recommendations. And listen, thank you very much for being involved in the podcast. Yeah, well, I wish you uh, all the luck with the podcast and uh, I hope to uh, uh, see more of it in the future. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Strange Exiles, a podcast about ideas, ideology and identity. You've been listening to Peter Sass, the Dutch philosopher and spiritual seeker who writes the blog Critique of Pure Interest. We'll link to the blog in the description of the podcast, so make sure you check that out. Perhaps we'll get Peter back on a future episode to uh, talk a little bit more about his music projects and his ongoing quest for a kind of balance and peace, which I think is something that we could all do with a little bit more of. On future episodes of Strange Exiles, we'll be speaking to political figures, journalists, um, people who are experts on occult or weird knowledge. Uh, we'll be diving into subjects which you might be strange or different or uh, hopefully revelatory for you as a listener. My goal with this podcast is very much to expand the boundaries of what you think about, uh, what you feel, and maybe maybe the ideas that you explore. Um, I hope Peter Sass has been uh, a, a good place to start uh, with, with that kind of exploration. You can follow us on Twitter at Strange Exiles, and you'll find us on all of your favourite podcast streaming sites. Uh, just a few uh, words of thanks. Thanks to Weaponizer, our sponsor, and also to uh, Asthmatic Astronaut of This Is Not Pop Records for our beautiful theme tune. Thanks also to Pete Ross and Ewan McAleese for their help with putting together the first episode and um, helping me to get it out there on the feeds. Hit subscribe and we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>